Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real dialogues, not slick, overproduced interviews with legendary people, the people who are making our world a different place. And uh, off the top, I just want to say a heartfelt thank you to Dina, Ritchie, and the folks of ReadWrite.com. As you probably know, ReadWrite is a top tech entrepreneurial uh, website, incredible content. And recently they published their top 25 podcasts designed to make you think and grow. And uh, Dina and the team were kind enough to uh, include us on the list. And frankly, they named us the best dialogue podcast. And uh, Dina, uh, you couldn't have given us uh, a more um, powerful recommendation. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, I also want to say thank you. Uh, I, I had no idea when we started this journey about three years ago um, that we'd have this much fun. Um, and frankly, that interacting with our listeners would be this much fun. And so I just want to thank you for your ongoing support, for sharing this podcast and for um, now helping us achieve this recognition as the best dialogue podcast from readwrite.com. On this episode, we continue our run of legendary authors. Today, we hang out with former Marine FBI agent and a guy who was the chief of the FBI's counterintelligence behavioral analysis program. His name is Robin Dreek, and he's got a brand new book out called Sizing People Up. And I loved reading it and I loved hanging out with him. Robin used to, amongst many other things, hang out with foreign spies in an effort to get them to turn on their own country to help the United States. He's got some insanely valuable experience on how to connect, communicate, and relate to people, and frankly, how to get people to do things that sometimes they wouldn't have done otherwise. This is a very powerful episode on human behavior, and pay sp uh, special attention to the part where Robin talks about the FBI's real secret for solving crime. Now, my friends at NetSuite have more than 19,000 customers in over 2,000 countries. And that's because NetSuite from Oracle is the number one cloud business platform for high growth companies. And if you're a company that wants to grow globally, NetSuite has special capabilities um, to deal with currencies and all of the things that you need to do uh, to handle to, to grow internationally. And NetSuite has special capabilities for companies in almost every vertical industry, uh, including but not limited to software and technology, advertising and marketing agencies, apparel, energy, financial services, retail, manufacturing, distribution, IT services, hospitality, transportation and logistics, personal uh, professional services, and many more. And so regardless of your industry and regardless where on planet Earth you want to do business, NetSuite can help you plan and execute a growth strategy regardless of your industry. Now, um, they're offering you as a listener to this podcast a free demo and a free guide called The Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. Go to netsuite.com slash different to get your free demo and your free growth guide today. That's netsuite.com slash different. Now, also, you know that today legendary businesses are digital businesses. And my friends at Splunk are the worldwide leaders in data to everything. And uh, as a matter of fact, Splunk has become one of the eight fastest growing enterprise technology companies ever. 
And that's because over 15,000 customers in 110 countries use Splunk to bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Check out splunk.com slash D2E. That's S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D2E, as in data to everything. Additionally, you can go to Lockhead.com for more information on Robin and his great new book uh, that are contained in the show notes of this episode. Uh, And now, hey-ho, let's go. How do you know if somebody's lying? That's a great question. You don't. (laughs) <laughs> the you know, even the best people in the world are 50% accurate when it comes to detecting deception. You know, so I always put it into the realm of can I detect if someone's stressed? Because if someone's stressed, lying causes stress and also bad memories or bad thoughts cause stress as well. And they all look exactly the same. So if you see an individual that has some stress induced, either through the nonverbals or the words and language you're using. And that's something either to make a conscious choice now. Do I avoid that topic of conversation because I'm trying not to stress these people? Or is that an area, like if you are trying to explore someone that has deception with you, that's an area you might want to explore. Because basically, what I'm always looking for is transparency. Transparency in the areas that I need transparency in. And if I don't have transparency, I never like to tell someone or think of someone as lying or deceiving me. I just think in terms of they don't have transparency with me. Because transparency is a more of a neutral term. And it's more of a way to maintain a healthy relationship, possibly in other areas that they might be willing to have transparency in. So, you know, if I think about, uh, you know, I'm a guy who's probably seen too many cop shows. Um, (laughs) And, you know, if you think about some of the famous sort of cop show uh, questions, you know, uh, where were you last Thursday night at 10 p.m.? Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you ask me a question along those lines, what are you looking for to see if I'm being transparent, if I'm being forthcoming? I'm looking for a direct answer, you know, and and before I even get to that question, I'm establishing first rapport and then trust by demonstrating that I'm willing to affiliate with you and demonstrating that I value you. So I'm always making sure that I'm framing all the questions and all our dialogue in terms of these four things. I'm always going to seek your thoughts and opinions, validate everything you say and who you are as a human being without judging you. That doesn't necessarily mean I agree with you, but I'm just understanding you. And if appropriate, I'm empowering you with choices. So when I build those four things into establishing a connection with you and a relationship, I'm hoping to inspire you to want to be open and transparent with me. And so from that point on, when I do ask direct questions about things or places or events, I'm looking for that transparency and openness. And if I don't get it, I could poke at it or just realize, all right, he's not willing or she's not willing to be transparent in that area. I've either done a poor job of establishing it or there's such a, an egregious thing that they have shame about, about the thing that transpired that um, they're not willing to share it yet. Hmm. And so that sounds a lot like, you know, if I think about my old days in sales school, um, mm-hmm. taking lots of sales training, you know, the sort of notion of building rapport with somebody. Yeah, it's exactly the same. Um, and from rapport, you get trust. From trust, you get a healthy relationship. You know, because I relate what I did, you know, for my entire career is exactly sales. You know, my job was to recruit spies. And the product I was selling to these spies was American patriotism. So you want to talk about a tough sales job. 
I'm selling American patriotism to foreign nationals who don't have our best country, you know, our country's best interests at heart. And they're always generally diplomats from foreign countries. So it was illegal for me to talk to them. And they've never, and they generally don't do anything wrong. So they don't have a compulsion to talk to me either. So I'm that talk about a tough, tough sales product. You know, I got a, a concept I'm selling to people. It's illegal for me to talk to. Um, so what do you do in those situations? Same thing you do in sales. You discover their priorities, their needs, wants, dreams, and aspirations. And then I try to identify priorities that overlap with resources I can provide. You know, and so if you have an individual that their wish of a dying grandfather or mother, or, then I have a service and a, and a resource that I can provide. And so it's the same as sales. You know, you're identifying the priorities of others and you're offering resources in terms of those priorities. Now, I got to believe in the FBI. Um there are some very high stress situations where you're having these conversations with somebody. Yes. Yeah. Um, high stress is an interesting word. You know, I, matter of fact, when I was working on the last book, you know, the big thing that, you know, I, I worked with the same writer for a number of years and, you know, his context is, was the same. He goes, you know, you, you must've been sweating bullets. And I'm like, no, I wasn't sweating bullets, you know, because what you're doing is you're just merely taking in information, assessing the information, looking at the cause and effect of the information, and then taking action on the information. It it, it was basically a lifelong pattern of be- becoming very stoic. Stoic, not from a cynicism point of view, but stoic from a point of view of there's no right or wrong, there just is. You know, and so each time you're presented with a situation, um, whether it is national security related or you know, I even, you know, wrote about this, you know, potential World, World War Three thing, which didn't seem to me like that at the time when I wrote it. But it was just like, I guess, hindsight, you know, other people's context was, wow, that was a pretty big deal. And I was like, really? I was just kind of doing a job and working through a system and, and assessing whether I could trust this person or not with the information. And there you go. So it's, it's fascinating. You spend so much when you spend so many years and you know this in sales, you know, you spend so many years you know, interacting with people, you know that as, as soon as you take a side or judge them in some way, they're never going to buy your product ever. And they never want to see you again. And your brand is shot. So you have 21 years. I had 21 years of learning how not to have an emotional reaction to what anyone says, because as soon as you have an emotional reaction, especially if it's a negative one, um, you'll never have a cooperation. And so how do you stay stoic when you're um, interviewing a suspect in a horrible crime? You seek to understand why. You know, you know it's, the, the, that old adage um, really comes to play, I think, with, you know, walk, walk a day in my shoes and see what decisions you would make. So anytime someone has done something that was left of center or right of center or something that is sideways according to societal norms, my first question and the first impulse I now have is that's fascinating. What made him do that? Instead of, instead of sitting back and judging, of course it's heinous. Of course it's horrendous. And matter of fact, you know, I've only worked counterintelligence my entire career. And so it's mostly the, on the criminal side of things. It's only been espionage cases I worked. And in general, espionage subjects, if they're true espionage subjects, espionage is only one thing going sideways in their lives. They're, they usually have something else. Uh, and a lot of big majority of them have done, you know, crimes against children, believe it or not. Wow. And so, you know, one of the things sometimes I get criticized. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was saying, you know, if you, if your goal is to have this individual share with you the the names of the people he's victimized, if you sit across a a table or in a chair next to him and start judging, what's the likelihood they're going to share that information? You're going to be able to save people. None. Zero. 
So you can't judge because I, I call it validation. Validation is the key to so many things. Validation mean, doesn't mean you necessarily agree with them. It means you're seeking to understand that who they are and, and the, their thoughts and opinions and, and try to understand how they arrive at that place in time in their lives without judging it. So part of this is the good old Stephen Covey, seek first to understand and then to be understood? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's been a long time since I read it. I think it's back in Marine Corps I read his stuff. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while for me too, but yeah. uh, you know, you, you remember certain things and it's funny, you know, one of the things from time to time, not often, but from time to time, we will have um, a controversial person on the podcast Sure, and um, I'll get criticized for sort of being too friendly with them or something like that. Cause you know, I'm not a journalist, uh, you know, I'm a former marketing guy and entrepreneur who's curious about things and, and loves to talk. So here we are. Right. Um, and I, I sort of, I'm with you even with somebody who I might not agree with or who's controversial or, or I might have different points of view about, you know, things I might consider um, important. Sure. The longer I've been on the planet, Robin, the more I've tried to take a curious mindset. You know, tell me yeah. about that. Yeah, because, the, you know, what every single human being, no matter what station in life you are, no matter what ethnicity, gender, orientation, every single human being is genetically coded and hardwired for simple things. We want to be affiliated with meaningful groups and organizations because it means our survival and we want to be valued by the same. We're genetically coded to survive. You know, that's why I always say I can predict what every single human being is going to do every moment of every day. It's very simple. We're always going to act in our own best interest for our own survival, safety, and security, and prosperity. All I have to do is what is figure out what you think that means to you, and I now know what you're going to do. And so if you start judging that, here's another guarantee. If I'm not demonstrating affiliation, and if I'm not demonstrating and value, valuing you, your shields are going to go up. There's going to be no exchange and you're done. It's just a guarantee because if you're not demonstrating those four things, as I said, seeking thoughts and opinions, talking in terms of priorities, validating the power with choices, you're not demonstrating anything that's good for them. So maybe you could give me a little coaching here, Robin. Um, <laughs> I'm currently in a situation that is a very unusual one, um, the supporting a, an entrepreneur and there's a major transaction um, in the works. And the sort of lead individual on the other side ha got to that place very quickly, got mm -hmm. to a guarded, you know, F you, I'm going to show you this is wrong, you know, just a very angry and defensive. And I would almost, it's a very bizarre situation, a bullying kind of a stance right. that mm -hmm. um, is pretty unusual in my 30 years in business. Sure. Um, and so when you get to that sort of a place where somebody is acting this way, um, what are things you can do to try and course correct? So the first thing that strikes my mind is, all right, this person is massively insecure about something, you know, and so now the next thing I do is identify what's causing the insecurity, because whatever you did, you know, this is where I take ownership. It's like, all right, I did something or said something or the partner did that spiked the insecurity of this individual. So it's about identifying the topic that spiked the insecurity because then for whatever reason, they are, they've either overshot a skill set that they had or, or something they could do and he, he or she feels they're being called on it or being challenged on it. And so that spikes up the insecurity. And because 
insecure just spiked up when we feel we're not we're about to be found out or not valued by the by the group or team that we're part of and so that's the first thing and so once i identify what's causing the insecurity flare up you know the the topic or or area the next thing you got to figure out is all right most likely the insecurity is being flared up because they do have a lack of competence or skills in that area now you have to decide is that critical to what we're trying to accomplish and if it's not let them know it's not and if it is, well, then you need to make new decisions, either give them training or tools to overcome it. And if it's not a big deal to you, also let them know that's not a big deal to you. But then, so that's the first part of it, emotional instability. You know, I got these six signs for predicting behaviors of others. And if, and if, this, is, if this is just a one-time flare-up, that's okay. But if there's a pattern of emotional hijacking that goes on with an individual, you know that there, emotional hijacking happens basically, you know, when we're insecurities flare up. and if, if they're flaring up so much that they can no longer cognitively think or have a cognitive thought process, which is re- based on reason and ration, then you need to make another decision about who to partner with. Because when someone gets emotionally hijacked like that, they are not clearly thinking about goals, objectives, and methods to get there. Um, and that's, so here's a guarantee. I call it past patterns of repeated behavior. If he does it once and does it twice, I guarantee he's going to do it a third time. And so yeah. before, be, yeah, before you get burned, I would, uh, I would assess whether it's in an area that's critical to the functioning of, the, of your uh, cooperation or not. Yeah. In this situation, it's a pattern of behavior. It started very early on. It's an yeah. entrepreneurial situation where we're looking at a major transaction. And I, I think the thing that's upsetting to this guy is simply my presence. <laughs> in other words, I think what was going on was he thought he was going to get this great deal. It's around a venture capital deal uh-huh. uh, because the entrepreneur is a younger, naive, uh, not been there, done that entrepreneur. And all of a sudden, myself and a couple others show up as advisors to this entrepreneur and get sort of catapulted into this negotiation. And he goes from thinking he's going to, you know, to put it nicely, get a very advantageous deal for himself to you know, all you have to do is Google me and the few others involved to understand um, this is not our first rock and roll show. And so just our presence has freaked this guy out and spun him into a set of behavior that is very bizarre. So that is, so here's my take. Again, I love doing objective observations of things because you get a lot of, you got a lot of fascinating things that strike me with this one. So basically you're brought into someone that is new to a, uh, new to a thing he's doing. And by your presence, you're basically just by your presence and who you are on your background. So you're going to be demanding transparency. And if someone gets to gets emotionally hijacked for a demand of transparency, that means they're attempting to manipulate in some way. So well, it's interesting you say that, Robin, because in this case, um, he was making a set of claims that essentially meant, you know, the deal should be uh, massively tilted in his favor. Uh-huh. And so I just objectively said to him, okay, so um, essentially back those claims up. What proof do you have about that? Mm-hmm. Transparency. Course, he can't produce any. Right. <laughs> so it's like, well, you know, and I do the old, help me understand here, Jimmy. And of course his name's yep. not Jimmy, but, and he just uh, reasserts the claim. Well, you guys should fucking know better and this can, and, and you know, nah, 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 and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, uh, uh, okay, show me. And he just goes back to asserting the claims with no specificity right. or details underneath it. Right. He's trying to manipulate. So it's, it's a choice. 
uh, I would back out. That's that's this is an unhealthy relationship. I don't care what kind of money someone brings into it. This is someone who is trying to, you know, he's got up, he's got observation, he's got subterfuge. You know, there's a lot of lack of transparency that you're demanding. So, because so, I, I get so the most common question I get is kind of like the first one you asked. You know, not deception, but you know. So, how do you know when someone's trying to manipulate you? You just described it perfectly. They have a lack of transparency in areas they should be transparent in. They're trying That's to manipulate you. So uh, if, it's, if it's an area that, you know, in the law, you hear about the, the reasonable person test, right? Would a reasonable mm-hmm. person think that in the nature of whatever the discussion is, that a certain level of transparency would be reasonable, normal, mm-hmm. acceptable, et cetera. Mm-hmm. When someone isn't that way, something's up. Yeah. I, so I have these three anchors for everything I do and everyone I interact with. My number one anchor is my number one goal in all in, encounters and in, in, in engagements is a healthy professional relationship because you can't accomplish anything without a good, healthy professional relationship. My number two is open, honest communication and transparency because you can't have the healthy relationship without that. And my third, which keeps you in the leadership seat, believe it or not, is I'm an available resource for the success and prosperity of others without expectation of reciprocity. You know, so that without expectation of reciprocity means that I'm, I'm, I'm making it about them and not looking for a return. Although when you give unconditionally, what happens, you generally have return. Yeah. And, um, and even if you don't have a material, or try to manipulate. So th- those three anchors are one of them. Oh, and I, I found maybe this is a side note, but even if you don't have like a material return, Oh yeah, the psychic reward of being a giver as opposed to a taker is is pretty powerful. And so, um, you know, many okay. of us learn over time that we want to actually give a lot more than we receive. Well, because what happens when you give? You create brand. You create your own brand, and who doesn't want to then cooperate and be with you? Because when givers give, whether it's uh, support in any of those three ways, where you're demonstrating value and affiliation to others, that's a non-materialistic. But you're giving. And the greatest reward any human being can have, and that is the gift of validation. You know, because here, here's what's happening in the brain when we do these things. Human beings, you know, when we're feeling affiliated and valued by others, dopamine's being released in the brain. Oxytocin, serotonin, all the pleasure centers are firing. And so think about the strongest relationships you have with the best people. How often during the course of your last dialogue or conversation did you seek their thoughts and opinions, talk in terms of their priorities, validate them, and empower them with choices? Roughly on average, 5 to 10%. But now when you increase that consciously with no manipulation, just because you know how to use your language to 100% of your dialogue, their brain is firing. They can't wait to be around you because they get addicted to be around you because you make them feel good about who they are. Because it's never about how you make people feel about you. It's how you make them feel about themselves. And so when I, you know, in your situation, you know, when I encounter someone with those kind of behaviors in that, in that specific area, because in other areas in his life or your engagement, it might be completely fine. But for some reason, he's got a lot of the subterfuge. He's got a lot, a, lot, a lot of lack of transparency. I back out. I'm not saying what anyone else does. I just back out of unhealthy because that, that particular lane you're in right there, that is unhealthy. It's one of the weirdest situations I've been in in 30 years, for sure. Now, yeah. there, I want to make sure I got what you just said there. I think you said um, it's not how they feel about you; it's how they feel about themselves. Is that? Did I hear that right, Robin? Yeah, yeah. It's not how you make them feel about you; it's how you make them feel about themselves. Because 
how people feel about themselves when they're in your presence, that's what the gold is. You know, so, it, and, and, and we've all experienced these people in lives. I mean, I was not born doing this. I am a, you know, you look at my background, I am a hardcore type A narcissist, no doubt. You know, and I, you know, I spent my life trying to make people enamored with me. Look at me, look how great I am. Look at the great case I had. When I finally learned how to start shifting it to focusing on others, which like my wife does majestically, you know, my, my Jedi master that I, I worked under in the FBI, these people were the master people that all, you know, he'd sit, this guy worked within the FBI. He'd go down, sit on a park bench in lower Manhattan when I was working in New York City. He'd have like 30 people come up and sit down next to him, ask him directions, what's a good restaurant to go to. I sit down and I'm, I'm, I'm like this plague. You know, some people just have that ability. And so I was like, how do you be like that? What are these people doing that are the natural gravitators that people just love sharing with and talking to? Well, you know what they're doing? They're seeking your thoughts and opinions and not judging you, guaranteed. <laughs> So when you actually start giving the labels and meanings to the behaviors they're actually doing, it makes it very repeatable. So you, so even if our, you are that type A hard charger like I am, um, you don't have to worry about changing who you are. These are the things you add to yourself to kind of mellow out that self-centeredness, which we're, I mean, we're genetically coded to be self-centered, some more than others, but, how, but everyone wants to feel that affiliation. They want to feel that value. And how do you actually do that? Like, in other words, build rapport, go. I mean, it's kind of, uh, uh, well, you do, no, 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 actually, I got 10 steps for building rapport. I got five steps for trust. I know exactly what to do because I gave it those labels and meanings, and it actually is the elusive obvious. It is very simple. And so uh, let me see if I can triangulate sort of law enforcement experience with business and sales and marketing experience. So one of the things I learned early in sales training was this notion of um, be very aware of your listen to talk ratio. And that is to say what m most people want to talk. And I get it. I'm a talker. Um, but legendary salespeople do only 20% of the talking and they let their customer or prospect do 80% of the talking. And so um, tell me how you think about listening and talking and, and that part of the interplay. You're absolutely, absolutely 100% correct. And I'm going to add a little bit more to it too. It's talking and listening, the listening part. It's not just about shutting up. Because some people, most people, when they say, all right, I have to talk less and listen more, what they're actually doing is they're just shutting up. And when people shut up, they're thinking about the next slick thing they're thinking they're going to say. They're really thinking about themselves during the entire thing, and they're not tuning in to the other person. The reason why you need to talk less and listen more, especially in that ratio, that ratio would be wonderful, is because everything that comes out of that person's mouth is one of their priorities in life. It's one of their challenges. It's one of the things that is most important to them in those moments, in that time. And what you should be doing, not should, because should is judging. The, the, the great people are listening to all the things that they're talking about because those are the things that are most important. And what you should be doing or could be doing is thinking about the resources you have that can satisfy some of those priorities, satisfy some of those needs. Or, and sometimes too, the 20% you're going back you're sharing some of the resources you might have in some of those areas. And the other time, you're sharing affiliation. You're sharing other you know, things that are part of you that are actually like, very, very similar. And so you're building affiliation by commonality, and then you're providing resources in the other areas that you've identified as their priorities. So that's why the more you listen, you're hearing all the things. You're getting this beautiful buffet of everything that's important to that human being at that time and place. I love it, Robin. 
you know, and in addition, just I, I don't know how this fits into your work, but what I found just as a human being living on the planet over time, you know, when I was younger, I had a lot to say. I still have a lot to say. But over time, I found, you know, I'm actually not that interested in what I have to say. I know what I have to say, right? Um, yes. And so I, I, it sort of shifted for me to where I am authentically a lot more interested in what you have to say, and that's why we're sitting here. And so I guess maybe what's the mindset around this notion of, uh, you know, I've heard active listening and various different distinctions and sort of the, the difference between just waiting to talk and actually engaging and listening. And so do you have any sort of techniques or, or mindsets or approaches that I could use to become more of a listener who's m- more empathetic? Absolutely. And it's very, it, there's a few things I recommend people do that are going to be very, very weird and feel weird and awkward the first time you do them. And, the, and this is one of them. So, the, so what human, the reason why human beings interact, I mean, we're all on this planet together because we're meant to be social creatures. You know, otherwise we'd be here by ourselves, you know, so we're meant to interact and have these social interactions and our, and our, chem, our brain chemistry compels us to build these affiliations. And so, you know, Harvard did this study in the, back in the April of 2012, where they actually measured and they saw at 40% of every day, we're sharing our own thoughts and ideas with other people because during that 40%, we're actually testing the world around us for acceptance. And so what the brain does is as soon as someone shares an anecdote, thought, story, or opinion with us, our brain automatically has one that we want to return with. And so here's what you do. You want to be a great listener. As soon as you have that impulse, because your dopamine, your brain is screaming, hey, share your story, share your story. Take your story and dump it. Don't even think about it. Toss it out. We focus back on them, focus on their story, and ask yourself, be prepared to ask and explore the things they said with, how did you decide to do that? When did you decide to do that? What kind of challenges did you have along the way when you decided to do that? You will, you return with one of those three open-ended type questions and they're going to go even deeper. And here's the other guarantee. When you have nothing to say because you dumped that anecdote or story, you're going to remember absolutely everything they said because you're so focused on their words and understanding them. And the further you go back in time with someone to understand them, you gain context. Context gains acceptance and understanding. And you're off to the races. You will have a relationship and you will have trust. And so we, uh, we really have to train ourselves to shut up and, and surrender whatever our shit is, right? Like That's we all word. have those Surrender. <laughs> yes. Right. We all have those stories we love to tell about what happened in school or some funny, you know, some of us have the same three fucking jokes that we tell or whatever right. it is. Right. And they're like, right. okay, well, this is where I do my X, Y, Z thing in the conversation. And so what I think I hear you saying is, hey, surrender that stuff and maybe ask another question, right? Ask a follow-up yeah. question. Yeah. And if you, never, if you ever find yourself in a, in a situation where you don't know what to say next to do that because you don't, you're trying not to talk about yourself, I love those challenges questions. Even if it's like, hey, what kind of challenges are you dealing with um, with getting here today? What kind of challenges did you have with parking? What did kind of, you know, because everyone has challenges. And when someone answers their challenges, um, they will share their current priorities. What kind of challenges you have in your industry? What kind of challenges you have as a podcaster? I mean, I can't, that's, it's amazing. Right. And I could tell you all about them. <laughs> so people searching. Yeah. That's what I mean. It, it, and it could go all day on it. You know, so those are the type of questions that elicit fantastic um, understanding of priorities of others. So tell me about your challenges. 
my challenges are, are being a one man show juggling, uh, my own company, doing my own marketing, doing, doing everything on my own. It's a challenge because I, I have, I, you know, everyone has a, a skill set. I have a very narrow one. I, I'm, I'm good on my content, but getting it out to others, that's the challenge. <laughs> well, so isn't that interesting, right? I, 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 my assumption, you tell me, you know, you had this incredible career in the military and in law enforcement, the FBI, um, and you were doing that for many, many years. Mm-hmm. But now you're a writer and, and you're sort of out in the world sharing your learnings and so forth. And so now you have to have this whole other entrepreneurial marketing skill set because you mm-hmm. have these wonderful learnings and this great new book and et cetera, et cetera. But in order for that stuff to make any difference, you got to figure out how to, quote unquote, put yourself out there. Yeah. You know, it's, and, and the first, it's funny. So the first challenge in life was... Um, I like all the books I've written and all the articles, I always call my manuals on how not to be the moron I was born to be. <laughs> my books are, are not what I was born with. My books are my manuals on, on how to be better than I was born to be because I'm a self-centered narcissist moron. And so the first challenge was learning how to do everything I put in the books. Now the second part is the second challenge is now, all right, how do I get it out to other people? So it's a life's a beautiful journey, isn't it? <laughs> it sure is. Now, I also want to ask you a little bit about um, a lot of people make a lot of body language and the sort of the unspoken communications and how powerful that is. Mm-hmm. I was recently in a conversation uh, with a, a, a person I just met and spent about probably two or three hours with her. And for the vast majority of the time, particularly the first hour and a half or so, got a little better towards the end. She did not look me in the eye and she did not look the others in the eye to the point where, Robin, you know, when you're sort of, we were standing up at one point having a conversation and it was very noticeable to me that she was either looking down or looking past the person. And even Mm -hmm. when she would move sort of her head to the person who had asked her a question or she was interacting with, she would sort of look past them. And Mm -hmm. she did that with me too. And so what are we to make when there's a sort of a noticeable, unusual physical uh, behavior like that? So the first thing you have to ask yourself is it unusual for her. Um, I remember the first uh, BAP case, behavioral analysis program case I sat on when I was a team member, all we had of an individual was video and the guy in the video um, so we had an undercover uh, agent and we had a guy, an in- individual he's talking to, and they're sitting there at lunch eating a hamburger together. And it was about an hour and a half long video and the guy was not saying anything. So all we had to go was on nonverbals. And it was very, very similar in the sense that the individual across the table was not looking the guy in the eyes and past him. He's asking questions, um, only giving very short answers. I remember we had one of our operational psychs with us. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, wow, we got a lot here because the guy's not looking him in the eye. And he goes, no, what you have a lot of what you have is a lot of data points for that individual in this situation. What you don't have is data points for the situation with other people. In other words, if that's her normal behavior with everyone, then she's treating you very normally. And so, but that's what you don't know. So now the next thing you have to do is look at, well, what kind of information and openness and transparency does she have? Because if she has open and transparent communication and that's her normal body language, well, now you've established her baseline of normal. But now if she has that kind of behavior where she has nonverbal avoidance and she's not being transparent 
and she's using subterfuge in some way with the words uh, and the information she's sharing. Well, now we have congruence between avoidance behavior and avoidance nonverbals. So you really have to, you can't just look at nonverbals alone. They are a great indicator, but they're also in first contact with people. What they're doing is they're establishing a baseline of what normal is. And so you want to be very disarming and talk about very neutral subjects with someone first. So you establish what normal looks like. That way, when you start talking business or you start talking about different topics, you can see what reactions they're having non-verbally and also the things they're saying. Because then you can kind of see if this is an off-topic, if they're if they are being lack of transparency. You know, because I mean, I know a lot of people that are ultra introverts that do have with you know with appropriate and I call it appropriate it depends on the societal norm in which you live. You know, for appropriate non-verbal behavior. And also, you know, if you're on an autism scale of some way, you're also going to, you know, have different behavior as well. You know, so there's so many factors that play into nonverbal behavior. That's why you also need very, very good uh, listening skills to kind of assess at the same time as you're watching nonverbals, what's going on there. Do we have transparency and openness or do we have a lack of transparency and openness? And that way you establish your nonverbal baseline of what is good and open as opposed to closed and uh, tense. It's fascinating you say that because. That's, I think that's pretty much what I did. In the beginning, I immediately had an assessment that said, okay, she's hiding something. Uh, she's not trustworthy. Something's off. Mm-hmm. But then to your point, and of course, I was doing this more intuitively. You're giving me a, a, a lens to think about things that, that is very powerful here. Uh, she became very transparent. We had a number of questions to ask her and she was teaching us some things about this business that she's involved with and so forth and so on. And the more communication we had over approximately about three hours or so, the more it became apparent that not only was she not defensive or elusive, she was being very transparent Mm-hmm. The other thing she was being, which I also find interesting to look for in people, maybe you can tell me about this one, is she was being, uh, I don't know exactly the right words, Robin, but I would call it sort of authentically balanced. So she would say if she thought something in the business was done poorly, she'd say if she thought something was done sort of all right, but not great. And then she'd say if she thought something was great. And whenever I interact with somebody and they sort of paint one thing with a whole brush, like, oh, this is all fucked up or oh, these guys got it all wrong. And they sort of put themselves above everybody else and put mm-hmm. everybody else down. In this case, she, w- she gave the strong impression that she was giving her authentic opinion about certain things in this business um, in, a, in a thoughtful way. Right. And as she did that, it became clearer and clearer to me that, well, I- I'm not sure why she's not looking us in the eye. But she she appears to be very truthful and, and to use your term transparent. Yeah, uh, and it sounds like a lot of emotional stability as well. You know, individuals. I, I you know I love individuals that have emotional stability because emotional stability. One way to have it is also um, to have lack of insecurities, because insecurities make people rail a bit against other people. They make people gossip. Um, they have you know they tell bad stories about other people. They love putting other people down because they fear not being connected themselves. And so when someone has no problem um, being open and forthright about others without putting them down, just just giving an assessment of what is is without an emotional label to it, it's uh, it's really good. You know, next time, you know, something you could always do, you know, if something looks a little off-putting 
non-verbally, you know, you're asking a lot, you're asking a lot of very similar questions, you know, at, at a break or something, you always ask, you know, say, you know, Hey, you know, I just had a recent really traumatic event in my life and share something here is, you know, have you ever gone anything like, have you ever gone through anything like that? So when you ask someone about a traumatic event, what you're going to do is you're going to trigger a different thought pattern and you can kind of see their nonverbal reaction to the thought pattern to see what not what changed nonverbally for them to see if that's so in other words you might see a spike in stress it's called a control question just kind of see if you're worried about someone's nonverbals and whether they're being open and transparent or not um, you can throw a control question to kind of get them to think about something that's not very comfortable and if they think about something that's not very comfortable and you got a spike in the pattern of their nonverbals then you know that all right the way they were interacting with me was very normal and their baseline of good open transparency mm. so put them in a situation so Maybe in a business context, say, and maybe there's a way to incorporate this with something we were just talking about, you know. Uh, so, hey, Robin, I'm just curious, uh, you know, what are some of the most um, challenging situations you've been in in business? Yeah. And then capitalize on that. It's like, tell me when something went bad. Yeah. You know, and that way you kind of, one, you're going to test that open and transparency thing again, which is great because if people have no problem sharing when things went south, what I'm looking for is tell me, have openness and transparency when things went south and tell me the tools you put in place and learn from it. That demonstrates self-awareness and a willingness to learn and a willingness to share and be open. So what I'm looking for, transparency on that kind of question. And then I'm looking for what changes in nonverbal behavior. Now, the other one I've been dying to ask you, you know, in the context of seizing somebody up quickly, um, you know, we all have a primordial fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And, um, in a situation, I had this happen the other day, um, in a situation where I'm in out in the world out for a walk in this situation, I had just parked my car and there was a couple in front of me who had just parked their car and they had gotten out of the car. And, um, the guy looked pretty spooky to me. He, I had an assessment that, you know, he might be on drugs um, he had neck tattoos. He had a hoodie on with the hoodie up. And, you know, he looked like a potentially nefarious or dangerous character. My assumption in these situations, and you'll please tell me if, if you think I'm doing smart things or dumb things, is I want to initiate verbal contact because I want to take my assessment and test <coughs> it uh, by sort of seeing where they're at. And so, uh, I said to the couple, I said, no, good morning. And he gave me a very gruff response. He said, why are you asking? And I said, oh, I was just trying to be friendly. And I immediately you know, managed my distance and made sure I didn't get close to the guy. And so I've always had this take where in a situation where you're not 100% sure about somebody else, particularly in this one where um, you know, I, I didn't feel threatened but I wanted to make sure nothing bad was going to go on. Like, what are these people doing? I have always liked to initiate verbal communication to get a sense for what comes back. And in this case, he validated that, you know, something was off with this guy and I better keep my distance. But I'm curious what you think about um, that technique, that approach. Yeah, I agree. Um, I do the same thing. You know, if I like engaging people to begin with, and I love, I love in situations like you just had, you know, where someone is very different from you in manner of dress, maybe manner of speak, um, everything. 
And I love, I love giving those, uh, initiating those engagements because one, it throws them off guard because, you know, it, they, you seem do, so disjointed from their type of world. And 99.9% of the time you get amazed that, wow, they're very friendly, very nice. You know, it's just their choices in life. You know, what they're choosing to do is different. But like in this case, you did, a, you did the right things. He gave you a, uh, a very stressed response, you know, which was not open to accommodate because basically by initiating conversation like that, you're demonstrating that you want to affiliate and you want, and you're trying to demonstrate value to them, you know? And so, and the, and the fact that it was rejected says that's, you know, for some reason, and you can't, you can never assume what that reason is, but for some reason they do not want to affiliate with you whatsoever. So give them the space. Absolutely. The other thing that is subtly going on, or at least that I'm trying to achieve, uh, if you sort of go a layer deep, is um, to let this person who might be threatening to me know that, A, my intention is not to be threatening to them, but at the same time, by initiating conversation first and doing it in a friendly um, you know, I'm not trying to escalate or anything like that. I'm not, you know, men can stare each other in the face. And so it's, it's the opposite of that. But at the same time, by initiating first, and I have a pretty loud, clear voice. And so I speak to people that way. Good morning. How are you? Right. I'm also letting them know um, I'm friendly, but I'm not afraid of you. Right. You're a presence. Because um, bad people never go after hard targets. That's why you see all the school shootings. That's why you see church shootings. That's even why the horrendous things that happened down at the naval base in Pensacola, because, you know, bad guys go for soft targets, you know? So when you demonstrate any kind of lack of softness, you know, you'll be fine in most cases. I won't say in all cases, but, you know, just don't be a soft target. And by demonstrating that you're willing to engage, you're demonstrating you're not a soft target. Yeah. That's always been my objective. Um, and, and if something bad is up, the way they respond is going to give me an extra second or two to get ready for what might come. You know, in, in the case of this interaction, um, his negative response made it very clear I needed to manage my distance and nothing happened. They just walked the other way and that sure. was the end of that. Well, yeah, because it wasn't about you. You know, they had something going on in their lives. You know, they either were, you know, in the midst of a fight, an argument, a bickering or a drug deal. You have no idea. You know, so that's why I never make assumptions about what it is. All I know is that this person doesn't want to engage and I, I won't engage them. It's all about them. Now, I'm also um, very curious to ask you, um, what are the things that you would want me to know about how the FBI solves crimes that maybe most of the world wouldn't know, or I wouldn't necessarily pick up from, you know, watching Silence of the Lambs 20 times and, you know, <laughs> Law and Order reruns and, uh, you know, various other, you know, what's the, um, what's the FBI one where they fly around on a plane? Criminal Minds. Criminal Minds and you know, all these things and all these books that we are, are all the rage and that I've enjoyed for all these years. But what are the things that are real about how the FBI solves horrible crimes that maybe most of us wouldn't know? So I have a really simple answer that I, I always lived by inside when I was still working. And it's very simple. The FBI is, exists for a very simple reason. Solve crimes, um, whether you know, criminal, national security, or terrorism. And the only way you do that is by developing confidential human sources, people. You know, tools and technology, they're, they're in 
scarce supply. You know, the, the biggest thing I think the difference between the TVs and movies is you're always seeing all these great gadgets, tools, resources, labs, and all that. Yeah, we have those, but the money and resources to get those things is really, really difficult. And, and also, the most amazing thing is we have this amazing piece of paper called the Constitution. <laughs> there is so much we cannot do very easily that the easiest thing to do if you want to solve a crime is go talk to people who might know something about it. So I would say the number one thing, my number one job at all times was to have great confidential human sources, great people, great patriots. You know, I always, I always said I'd rather have seven people give me 120% of their effort willingly than 100 people give me 5% reluctantly. So our, every case that's made inside the FBI or any law enforcement organization is, yeah, you use forensics and you do those good things, but it all starts with great relationships with the community, great relationships with people because... You know, there are so few, I mean, I, I can't remember the last number, the number of agents across the country, and I think it's like 9,000, 9 to 11,000 out of those, half are in management, then the other half are on the streets. Out of the ones that are on the streets, you know, we all got, you know, three quarters of our time are taken up by collateral duties, and then you all have the specialties, and, you know, so, you know, how, how does, you know, like when I was in New York, my job was to recruit spies. You know, there's 10 of us on my squad trying to counter about 40 to 50 foreign intelligence officers. How do you do that? Well, you need a, you need force, force multipliers. What are force multipliers? People and relationships. Everything comes down to it. And so you build those relationships. And so let, let me understand this. You know, to, to connect it to business. Um, one of the most important things if you're going to be in law enforcement and the FBI is your personal network. Yep, one hundred percent. And not just your personal network, but what builds a personal network? Your personal brand. Because then when something goes south with your organization, you know, say that uh, Microsoft just got hacked and people are afraid to buy from Microsoft, what's going to allow them, what's going to allow you to continue to prosper? Your personal relationship and your personal brand. And yeah. so when, when things go south with reputation of an organization like the FBI, <laughs> what happens you know, to your network if they don't have a personal relationship to you? Well, and look, I very rarely want to get political, um, but... We are at a time when the president of the United States has been pretty aggressively, um, I don't know how you would describe it, saying pejorative things about the FBI. Mm -hmm. um, you don't tell me about your thoughts about that. Like anything, um, some are founded and probably some are overboard. You know, but that's that's the nature of, of politics these days. You know, that's why I'm, you know, my personal brand is to never take a side because as soon as you take a side, especially at this point in history, half the world will line up against you and try to beat you down. You know, so, you know, people and organizations make mistakes. I, I, I believe, you know, a lot of people inside the Beltway got in a big, big thing of groupthink. And, and the great thing is you can be on either side of the, uh, of the aisle and you can say the other side was group thinking because everyone thinks the other side is group thinking. So, um, and, and it's a shame, you know, so I always look at it like this. There were some individuals, you know, inside my organization that lied under oath. You can't do that. Whatever you think about what everyone did or didn't do in, when you're in law enforcement in any organization, whether it's state, local or federal, you cannot lie under oath. That's, you know, you just can't do it. And so that's it. I just look at it like that again, cause and effect. And also we have, tons and tons of rules, regulations, and protocols, you know, for how we do what we do. Well, that's a challenge for everything that we do.
And if you start breaking that that cycle, um, for for whatever reason it is, you're opening yourself up to perceptions that can be off or they could be true. But the reason why we have protocols, any organization has protocols, is to is to make sure there's fairness and balance and checks and balances whatever you whatever you do, especially when you're in a line of work that you know you have you have very powerful tools, you know, that can uh, invade the right and privacies of others. That's why there's a whole protocol. You know, we had the dot, it's called the dialogue. Um, you know, it's basically our investigative guidelines for how we do what we do. Again, I wasn't part of that. So I don't know, you know, all you can do is listen to what the IG comes out with uh, on these protocols. But, uh, that's, that's what I do is, you know, were protocols broken? And if so, all right, you reprimand the people that broke protocols and you get back to the protocols and amend them if they need to be, because that's why we have checks and balances when you deal with organizations that have powerful tools. Fascinating. Now I'm also, I want to go back to the, okay, so your job is to recruit spies and get them to uh, essentially come over to the American side. Yes. Yes, not get them. I call, I think in terms of inspire them to want to, yes. <laughs> inspire them. Excellent. Much better language. Oh, because so, inspira- inspiration's about them. Getting them is about me. So it's always got to be about them. I love it. I, I'm, I, I try super hard, Robin, to be a student <laughs> of language. And I love how subtleties of language change thinking and behavior. Absolutely. And we want to inspire them to uh, no longer be uh, patriotic or affiliated to their own in many cases, I would imagine country of origin and, and become patriotic to uh, the United States. Yes. That can be a very broad, broad brush. I, I, I don't think probably out of everyone I've ever worked with very rarely is it that broad. Um, most often or not, it's uh, it's a, you know, you know, say, say Russia. You know, most of the time, if an individual was willing to to tinker with an idea about cooperation and you know align with with us, it was because they were very proud Russians. And Putin, this, this horrendous oligarch, was ruining their country, and so they're very proud about their their own their own historical heritage as pl- proud Russians. And they thought the only way to counter an individual that is ruining their country was to share things with us that would take care of him. And so sometimes that means they became patriotic to the United States. Sometimes it was personal vendettas. Some, you know, so you never really know. That's why there's never a, you know, people always say, so you know, I always ask the question, so how do you recruit a spy? And they go, oh, it's easy money. I said, no, <laughs> money, is a, money is a resource for achieving things. What is it that they're actually trying to achieve? What are their priorities? You know, sometimes it's their only wish is because um, they can't afford healthcare and, you know, and the type of uh, ailments that family members have are, you know, the healthcare is unavailable in their own country. And yet we have that kind of healthcare. Other times it's because um, schooling, you know, they're trying to you know, do certain things with their kids and schooling and, and there's a mandatory conscription. I mean, there's so many myriad of things that are priorities to different people. That's why every single every single individual has different priorities. And so you can't have that broad sweeping, oh, you know, I just, all I have to do is sell my patriotism and have them turn against their own country. So you're trying to find what their motivation for aiding you in a certain 
initiative case? Just, just seeing whatever their priorities are and seeing if I have the types of resources that are in terms that can satisfy those priorities. And then and, and in reciprocity, are they willing to share with me information that allows me to give them those resources? And how do you tell that, um, you know, in this James Bond world that you lived in for so long, um, how do you tell um, that they're not playing you, that I'm not pretending to be a Russian spy who's willing to help you when in point of fact, I'm actually serving my own country and I'm feeding you bullshit and lies to stay, you know, push you down the wrong tunnel and, and to manipulate the agenda of the United sure. States or whatever my agenda would be. But I'm being duplicitous with you in making you think that I want to help you when in point of fact, I'm up to something. So it's actually really pretty, it's much simpler than people think. One, organizations don't have time to screw with people like that because they're too busy trying to get an actionable intelligence to begin with. So proactively against another country, those take a lot of resources, resources that can no longer be used to gain the intelligence they're trying to gain. So that's the first thing. It's a rare thing to do. Second thing is very easy. The first thing you ask for is something that's so compromising that no one that was doing that would do. Like the first thing we'll ask for is something like, all right, identify everyone inside your embassy that's a foreign intelligence officer. Now, go. If they're unwilling to have that kind of, in other words, you're looking for transparency and compromising areas. Lack of transparency and compromising areas, it's, it's a setup, you walk away. And so you can find out pretty quickly that they're playing you in, in, in how transparent they'll be about certain sensitive things. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's generally the nature of the information that they uh, are willing to share. And if it's compromising information that, you know, that we know they wouldn't share, then, you know, it's, it's legit. And Robin, were you ever in a situation where you felt that you were trying to be recruited by a, a foreign government um, to turn on the United States in one way or another? Not directly. There was, there, there was one instance where I, I had arranged a, you know, I had a source uh, of mine that arranged a meeting with someone that. I had set this up where I had an offer for him, you know, to um, share some ground truth for investors overseas, you know, and because of his title and position, he'd have this ground truth for these investors. That's kind of a nice softball way to kind of say, hey, you're willing to take money on the side for information. And so I thought I was going to go to this, this meeting over lunch and, uh, and make this beautiful pitch to this individual in a great position of knowledge. Um, I'd look like okay, I was a rock star to the office and I got to the meeting and I'm giving my pitch. And all of a sudden, he starts pitching me the same thing. <laughs> I looked at him. I said, "I said, um, Igor. I said, I said, obviously, we're here for exactly the same reason. Except uh, I, I came here to offer you a job, not not be offered a job. I'll tell you what. I'm not interested in your job, and obviously, I don't think you're interested in mine. How about this? Why don't we finish our beer? Have a great day. If you change your mind in three months, reach back out for me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's almost like." Um those old uh, spy cartoon <laughs> type relationships yeah. in that sense, right? Yeah. It's funny too. You know, they always say, they always tell FBI agents, you know, kind of keep a low profile. You don't want to put yourself a target out there. You know, with all the books and articles I've written and the things I've done, I am so out there. I, I've been shocked that <laughs> I've never been approached. Just show you how little value people think I actually have. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not particularly concerned about your personal safety? No, no, you know, when you work in the world of counterintelligence um, and, and you deal, you deal with a world of, of diplomats, you know, it's all diplomatic core. You know, you have some undercovers, 
you know, they're, they're called illegals, but that's, that's a slightly different kind of world, but no, it was all, you know, we have this thing that we really believe in that we call lighthouse. You know, if people know who you are and they know who to go to and you make a, a safe, you know, you make things easy for them to find you, you know, the ones that actually are looking, you know, to, for some opportunities and some resources that are in terms of what their priorities are. Sometimes it's, it's if they know where to go and they know a safe way to get you that won't compromise them, that's generally the easiest way to do it. Now, I've got another question for you uh, that's maybe a little out of left field. Uh, not long ago, we had John McAfee on the podcast, and uh, he's running for president again uh, in this election cycle. And he made the claim that it doesn't matter who the president is because essentially, and I don't put words in his mouth, so I'll say my interpretation of what he said was that the CIA runs the country anyway, and the way they run the country or manipulate the president essentially is they have the information, they have the counterintelligence and they decide what to share with the president and how to share it with the president. And as such, um, they can essentially manipulate the country and therefore ergo the CIA runs the United States of America. That, that was my interpretation of what John said. And I know you weren't in the CIA, you were in the FBI, but you certainly were in the counterintelligence world. And so I'm just curious what your reaction to that kind of a statement is. So, so yeah, I mean, the CIA's information as well as the FBI's information is part of the daily briefing the president gets on Intel. Um, but here's a, <laughs> and you're right, you know, those organizations you know, in the DNI, Director of National Intelligence, you know, they provide the, the president information for action. But just remember, it's the president put the, puts the heads of those organizations in place. So, so yes-ish, <laughs> you know, that's the best thing I could say. So yeah, those, inf- those organizations, you know, all the three-letter organizations provide the information for decision makers and policy makers. But also remember, it's the organization that is appointed by whoever's in the White House. So, and if they don't like the information they're getting, or they don't think it's accurate, um, or they don't think it's unbalanced, or or they don't think it's balanced, then you know they'll put someone new in there. So, so I, I agree with the statement that yes, they can, they do have the opportunity to run the country, but at the same time, though, there's a lot of there's a lot of other checks and balances and information coming in from other corroborating you know sources. In other words, just the CIA's information is not the only information going to the president every day. The daily briefing uh, mm-hmm. he or maybe one day she gets is uh, is a combination of agencies. Yes. Yeah, I don't. I've never. I've never been out of daily briefings. So I don't know, but yeah, it's not just one organization provides all the information. Yeah, and whether you love uh, President Trump or not, um, one thing he has shown is he is more than willing to change people. Uh, out of jobs if he doesn't think they're doing a good job. <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's funny the. the <laughs> You know, the book is, you know, sizing people up is all about predictable behavior. And, and one of the signs of predictable behavior is past patterns of actions. You know, and when it comes to past patterns of actions, I don't think there's been a more predictable president than we've ever had. Because you know exactly what he's going to do pretty much all the time. If you poke him in the eye, he's going to go at you on Twitter. That, that's a given. You know, just and he's going to give you some weird nickname. So that's it's pretty predictable behavior. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, one of the things about this president that's fascinating is we all know where he stands and how he feels, at least in yep. a particular moment, because he tweets what feels like five thousand times a day. <laughs> he is fully transparent. He is he is a free flow train of thought on Twitter. There is no doubt. 
Yeah. And also like, when he walks and also when he walks out to the helicopter unscripted, it's a, uh, <laughs> I'm sure he gives his staff a lot of, uh, a lot of heartache. <laughs> yeah. You got to believe some of the lawyers and PR people are <laughs> pretty freaked out by him. Oh my God. It, it's definitely a, it's definitely a shift. There's no doubt. Now, Robin, I could literally talk to you for 10 hours about your background and your book, uh, but I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? No, you hit some really deep hitting stuff there. I, I don't get asked all that often about uh, all the fun, uh, all my fun spy background stuff, but uh, it's great questions. And hopefully, you know, the most important thing is to see, as I saw my life, there's really no difference, you know, and it's not that big of an enigma from what I did to doing sales to doing anything because, you know, I recently did another um, interview, actually was at a group I was given to talk to. And everyone says it, and you know it too as a salesman. The first thing you do in any situation is sell yourself. You know, and the same thing, whether you're, you're trying to recruit a spy or you're trying to sell a great product or even a lousy product, the first thing you're doing is selling yourself, which is basically what? You're establishing trust and establishing a relationship. Without relationships, you can't do anything in life. Everything comes down to relationships, good, healthy ones. Isn't that fascinating, right? I'm always fascinated by how social we are and that one of the greatest tortures we give and some people say the greatest torture we give is solitary confinement absolutely and i just think about that and i think wow we need each other so badly that one of the most horrible things we can do to somebody is leave them alone in a room by themselves you know um great anecdote to reinforce that and to leave you with um saddam hussein you know when we captured him he was in a cell in isolation by himself and they had one agent from the fbi his name was george Pirro. He was the only guy Saddam Hussein would see every single day. And after about a year or two, we knew everything. Because he was the only human being that would go in, talk to him, and validate him. Not agree with him, validate him, speak in terms of his priorities, ask his thoughts and opinions, and there you go. Human beings crave it. We need it. And no, there was no torture, no waterboarding, nothing. Just one-on-one -on -one human contact. It goes a long way in life. That is an absolutely fascinating insight and one that I didn't know. Well, yeah. Robin, thank you for writing such a wonderful book. I deeply appreciate your time and uh, you're welcome back anytime. Um, you're a fascinating guy. I really appreciate that you're doing this in the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks you for taking the time uh, to have a great conversation. It's a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Well, there he is, Robin Dreek. And I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation uh, as much as I did. And if you did, um, I would urge you to check out two of my favorite podcasts that feature uh, very similar conversations. The first one is my buddy Jordan Harbinger, and his um, one of, it's one of the top podcasts on planet Earth. It's called The Jordan Harbinger Show. Uh, and really, Jordan is one of the OGs of podcasting. Uh, check out episode 291, one of my favorites of late, with ex-cop Doug Williams on polygraphs, lying, and more. That's Jordan Harbinger, episode 291 with Doug Williams. And my buddy Eric Hunley has a fantastic podcast called Unstructured. And recently he had an episode with a former KGB spy called Jack Barsky. Check out Unstructured with Eric Hunley. All right. We would like to thank... The amazing Robin Dreek. Thanks for hanging out, Robin. And I would encourage you to pick up a copy of his great new book, Sizing People Up, a veteran FBI agent's user manual for behavior and prediction. 
the good folks at onelifefullylived.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. The number one, lifefullylived.org. Growwire.com. It's what legendary growth-oriented executives are reading today. Check it out. Growwire.com. Now, is it time to scale yourself? My friends at uh, Bottleneck Virtual Assistants want to help give you back the one thing that we can't get back, which is time. Check out bottleneck.online to check out the power of virtual assistants today. That's bottleneck.online. Now, if you're in Silicon Valley in the B2B space, you know that your website is your face to the world. As a matter of fact, you know, I find it amazing even today that there are some people who don't realize that the number of the first thing that people normally interact with when they hear about you, they Google you, and then they look at your website. And so your website is often the first impression people have of your business. And my friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. That's Atranet. And a book that I love from the legendary Dushka Zapata, Someone Destroyed My Rocket Ship and Other Havoc I Have Witnessed at the Office. What a great title. Check out Someone Destroyed My Rocket Ship by Dushka Zapata. And uh, if you, like me, are heartbroken over these horrible fires in Australia, uh, why not make a difference? One of the charities helping out is the World Wildlife Fund. Check out worldwildlife.org. That's worldwildlife.org to make a difference in Australia. All right, I need to remind you that this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. If you're in marketing, don't forget to check out uh, our new marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. We must warn you that all oddcasts are produced and created in a studio that does contain nuts. Teach listening. Don't forget to be nice to spies. In the event of business bullshit, take two follow your different episodes and email us in the morning. Uh, Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Uh, remember to listen to the Tragically Hip. Thank you so much, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Robert Hansen, former U.S. FBI agent who became a spy for Russia. Sorry, Bobby. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you. I deeply appreciate you investing part of your life with me. And until we're together again, follow your different. Follow your different.